How are we doing, church? Good? Happy Palm Sunday. Uh, we're, you'll notice that we didn't hand out palm things today. We don't do that here. We'll explain to you why in a little while. Today we're going to talk about envy. If you've got your Bible, I hope you do. We're going to be in John chapter 12. We're going to go from John 12 to John 19. Um, but, you know, don't be afraid. We're not going to be here like through dinner. We'll, I'll, I'll go fast. We'll skip lots of parts. But John 12 through John 19 is where we're going. So start in John 12. Um, a, a couple of things before we get going and start talking about envy. Uh, next week is Resurrection Sunday. Woohoo! You excited? So you're not ready. That's why I need one more week of prayer and fasting to be ready next week. Hey, please be here on, on time. I know it's hard to figure out when we start, but 1122, be here before that. Those of you that are able, park as far away as possible, uh, carpool, all of those things. And then also, we have a, a video venue service every Sunday morning at 1122 that we would like for you to check out next week. We need about 400 of you to choose to go there first. We don't have overflow services here. We have this, this worship experience here in the worship center, and then right through those doors, through those doors, go to a hallway into a 400-seat worship auditorium called the Sanctuary. So it's a little bit smaller and a little more intimate, but a live band in there. Uh, my wife led in there today. Usually it's uh, Maria Berlin leading. And so it's live singing, worship in there, and then uh, I'm on a screen, and I'm six foot two in there, so that's really special for me. I know you don't care, but my grandma is very proud, okay? So also, if, you have, if you're the parent of, of elementary-age kids, and you're dropping them off back here in our kid space, that when you pop out of that space, and you're right there, you crowd, you would be a great group of people to just head right on over. We need, listen, if you love Jesus and your pastor, then we both would be really excited if about 400 of you choose to go over there first so we could make room for our guests on Easter. Also, so make sure you do that. Also, something that's very, very important is um, since, the, since January 1st, so this year, 2014, over 250 of our folks at the Church of 1122 have surrendered their life to the Lordship of Christ. Isn't that amazing? 250 people. <clears throat> now, so there's a couple of things. Um, one, we're into making disciples, not converts. So we have this class called Origins. And if you've never been to a, like a new believers class and you're a new believer or you're not even sure what you believe or you just got your first Bible and you're kind of ripping the cellophane off of it and don't know where to start, Origins is for you. Or if you're just coming back to church, you know, you took a little hiatus, then that's fine. Come on back to Origins, and it's like Christianity 101, here's what we believe and the kind of church we are. So you can sign up for that. You can look at the back of your bulletin, you can sign up there. At the end of any service, you can go to the Connect Center, and you can connect with people there and do that. Also, in June this summer, we have our beach baptism service. Were you there for that last year? Wasn't that awesome? Right? Just fried chicken and Jesus. That's what it was. So we're going to do that again. We'll tell you more about it later. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, but if you've never been baptized as a believer, now if you got sprinkled as a baby, God bless you and your church and your family and that tradition and that was great. And that christening was awesome, but it's not exactly what the Bible means when it talks about believer's baptism. And so we want to give you the opportunity to publicly profess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and get baptized. That means dip, dunk, submerged. Um, we want to dunk you in the ocean uh, and, and have you publicly profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. One of the hiccups I know for you is you're afraid to do your baptism video. Just trust me. We don't want you to look goofy either, okay? When we put your big head on that screen over there, we want you to look awesome. So you'll come in and share your testimony, and our video team does a great job just making you look awesome. They do a couple different angles and some cool music, you know, life would be better with a soundtrack, and you'll tell your story, and if you say something dumb, we'll just pull that out and dub something great in there, all right? It'll be perfect. So don't let that be a stumbling block for you. In fact, if you film your baptism video, that might be your best opportunity to share the gospel with the most people that you ever will in your entire life at one time. So if you've never been baptized as a believer, you can sign up for our baptism class. Again, the information is on the back of your bulletin. You can go to the Connect Center. And if you intend on becoming a member of our church, believer baptism is part of that. So we want you to come to that class for that. All right, I think that's it. Um, now we're going to dig into the sermon. So let's pray before we do that. Pray with me. Dear Father in heaven, God, thank you so much for the healing that you have brought to us as we have walked through the seven deadly sins. God, as we, as we wrestle with this sin of envy, God, would we know deep in our soul that you are more than enough. Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would do what you always do. God, that you would, you would convict and you would comfort. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we're talking about envy. <clears throat> um, 
And all of us have an envy problem. I mean, if you're honest, nobody really admits it. But we all have some envy stuff that rise up in us. Um, ladies, if you've ever watched HGTV, you've participated in envy. You know you have. If you, you, and you know you have, too, even in real life. Like, you were totally cool with your house, right? You liked your house. You liked your countertops. You liked your kitchen appliances. You liked your 10-foot ceilings. And then when you went to your friend's house, and they have 12-foot ceilings. And then you went back home, and you're like, I don't even feel like I can stand up all the way in our home now. How have we lived in this cave and how do we eat out of refrigerators that aren't silver and, you know, whatever. It's just, that's just in you. And you just want some stuff, all right? And then men, we like to blame the women, but we've got it bad too. You know, I can't go into a Bass Pro Shop and not have a little something stir up in me because, golly, I didn't even know I needed that, but now I see it. How have I lived without it? Or some of you fellas, you went on the car lot and some other guy drove off in your car and you thought, mm, God, you're not only have you not given me enough, but you blessed the wrong guy, okay? I would look better in that car than him. Or you went to, you know, you hadn't been to your family reunion kind of deal in a long time and you bump into Ralph and Uncle Ralph is just being blessed. And you're like, God, why in the world would you bless Uncle Ralph? He's an idiot. I would be a better rich person than Uncle Ralph. All of that is, is envy. And envy and greed and jealousy and covet, that, they're all kind of first cousins. Greed is, I want more for me. Jealousy is, um, I want what you have. But envy is kind of the worst of all. Envy says, um, God, you've blessed the wrong person. I want yours, and I don't want you to have it. I, I would like for you, envy is that thing in you when you're on the phone with one of your friends that you're kind of jealous of a little bit, and they share bad news, and you're like, you know, the, the, the family's like with the perfect kids, and you're kind of envious of their kids. It's like they don't even have to brush their hair, right? It's just always perfect, and they're always so well-behaved. And then their friend calls you and says, oh, Timmy got suspended from school, and you're like, yeah. Oh, no, we'll pray for you. But in your heart, you just are thinking, oh, I always hated Timmy. Okay, so <clears throat> that rattles around in all of us. And so envy um, at its core is this. Envy is not wanting for you what God wants for you. Envy is not wanting for you what God wants for you. And a case study in envy is Palm Sunday. So if you've got your Bibles, John chapter 12, we're going to pick it up in verse 12, which is what it's called the triumphal entry. It's what we call Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of Holy Week. Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, and the crowd there is thinking he's coming for one thing, and they're actually asking for one thing. And then what we're going to see in the text is that Jesus is going to show up to provide something totally different. So John 12, 12, the next day a large crowd that had come to the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So he'd become very, very popular. He'd been doing miracles, and word had gotten out that maybe this is him. Maybe he is the Son of God. Maybe he is who he claimed to be. The people are looking for a Messiah, more of an earthly king. We'll develop that later, but they're excited. Big crowds are showing up, verse 13. And so they took branches of palm trees, and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. <clears throat> and you might think, well, what's wrong with that? By the way, how many of you uh, kind of grew up in a church tradition where on Palm Sunday, they would hand you a palm frond, and you would come in, and you would sing Hosanna, and they would wave it in the church, and you'd sing Hosanna. Anybody? Raise your hand. Come on, loud and proud. All right, I'm going to make us all feel dumb. Uh, me too. And I was stoked. I was like, sweet, props. This is great. It's going to be a better Sunday than a regular Sunday. We got props. So there's a lot of problem here. A lot, a lot, a lot of problem. Um, so, first of all, the people didn't even know what they were that excited about. In other, in other uh, Gospels, it goes on to say that not only were they singing Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and waving the palm branches, but they were also taking off their cloaks and laying it down in the road for King Jesus to come walking down the road, and they're singing together, the whole crowd, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then some of the people in the crowd would say, now, who is this? So they don't even know what they're cheering for. Have you ever been in a crowd and you just got caught up in the momentum of the crowd and you were excited about something and you didn't even really, you weren't even that excited going in, but once the crowd got going, you just got caught up in the crowd. You know you have. You know you've been to a Jaguars game and you're not even really a fan, but we were winning. Remember those days? And you were like, yay, right? I remember, um, I remember the first NASCAR race I ever went to. Any NASCAR fans in here? All right. No, you're not. You would have screamed, all right? You would have given me a, yee-haw, like that's a NASCAR, people. So you're like me, you just go sometimes. 
So I went, uh, I was in, I think I was in seminary or college right around in there. And we lived in Richmond, Virginia. And I got tickets to go to the, the race at Richmond. And I go, and I'm not really a fan. I mean, I grew up country enough to know some of the top racers, right? I knew that the way we were taught to count was one, two, Earnhardt, four. Like, I get it. But I, I, but I didn't really get it. I mean, I, I still couldn't. So what's the big deal? It's just drive fast, turn left. What do we do? Turn left. What do we do? Turn left. That's the sport. That's the sport. All right. So, but I go just because I had free tickets, and, and when I get my seats, this guy in front of me says, so who's your driver? I go, well, I don't really have one. I'm just here. I got free tickets. He's like, son, you're going to have to make a decision, all right? <laughs> and so I said, well, well, who's your driver? And then like any good NASCAR fan, he pulls off his shirt, and in the hair in his back, he has shaved the number three, like full on... And so I thought, well, brother, I am with you, okay? I am with you. And then a bunch of Gurley Gordon people came, and they sat right next to us. And I wasn't really, I'm just going with Harry back, man. I ain't going with anybody whose nickname is Gurley Gordon, all right? So, so, but I still don't really care that much at the beginning of it. But, you know, hours and hours later, after a couple of wrecks and a couple of laps around the, the, uh, the track, and enough people around me had enough liquid courage that it started several days before, by the end of the race, I had lost my mind, and I'm arm in arm with this sweaty, hairy man, just raising them high and singing out to the glory that is Dale Earnhardt. Why? Because you just get caught up in that nonsense. Folks, I got some bad news about Palm Sunday. That's what's happening on Palm Sunday. They don't even know what they're cheering for. And in fact, they're cheering for the wrong thing. So there's a lot here. When they're singing Hosanna, you know what Hosanna means? It means save us. Now, it's appropriate post-resurrection for us as a church to sing Hosanna because we know that we're singing, Lord, save us from our sin and from death. And that's what you save us from. But they're thinking, save us right now. Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And we want you to be the King right now. And what we want you to do for us is to kick the Romans out of Jerusalem and give us back what is rightfully ours. We are a city on a hill, a light, the light of this world. We are God's chosen people, and we want for us what we want on this earth right now. And the reason that they had palm fronds is it was a, it was a symbol in first century Israel that, that there was victory over your enemies. And, and they weren't talking about victory over sin and death, but victory over the people that were occupying their city. They are thinking politically. They are thinking, we want what we want right now. Jesus, your stories are great about the dad and the younger son, and he goes off and he comes back and has a party. Okay, throw us a party. Your miracles are great. We think it's cool that you walked on water and you fed a bunch of hungry people and you can raise people from the dead. Yeah, whatever. But we need you to give us what we want now. And what we want now, what this whole parade here is all about is Hosanna. Save us. You are here on our behalf. We are not here on your behalf. And so we're excited on Sunday. We're excited on Sunday because we think the Messiah is here. We think the king has come. And finally, we are going to get our payday. And so that's why they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king and they're not thinking king of kings. They're thinking the right now king of Israel. Verse 14, and Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt, which should have been the first clue. By the way, that's a, that's a reference to Zechariah 9.9. 9. It, it should have been the first clue that he did not come to be a king on this earth because earthly kings, they ride up with a lot of pomp and circumstance with a with a lot of secret service and with a white stallion and a chariot. And our king is going to show up riding on a donkey, verse 16. And his disciples did not understand, you think? He'd only been preparing them for three years. He'd only been preparing them over and over and over that this is what I am about. I am not about giving you what you are asking for. I am about giving you what you need. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified... Then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So the disciples are a little slow on the uptake. All right, verse 17. And the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. And the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. 
So it tells us here that the people that show up to Palm Sunday, they're showing up not to worship Jesus, not to ascribe worth to Jesus. That's what worship is, saying you are worthy. But they were showing up really with the question, what can you do for me? Jesus, I'll follow you, but what can you do for me? I got some sick people I need you to heal. I got some finances I need you to fix. I got a marriage that I need you to to fix here. So, Jesus, I need to know. I'll sing Hosanna, but that means you work for me. You save me. You give me on this earth what I want right now. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. And the world will always go after him as long as he gives them what they want. Look, here's the heresy of the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel says, if you do right by God, then he will do right by you. If you get right with Jesus, then you get to pull the cosmic uh, lever and then cha-ching, cash and prizes come your way. You know what the problem with that is? Is that the cash and prizes become the thing that you worship and not Jesus. That's what's happening on Palm Sunday. They're saying, Hosanna. Save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And again, that's why we don't preach the prosperity gospel here. You know the problem with the prosperity gospel in the Bible? It'd be the Bible. What happens to Jesus at the end of this week? He's going to go to the cross. Was he outside of the will of God? Absolutely not. He was doing exactly what God had commanded and called him to do. And it did not end in health, wealth, or happiness. It killed him. Everybody abandoned him. And we'll find out next week that he was sorrowful to the point of death. You see, we talk about it all the time that we don't follow Jesus because he makes life better, but we follow Jesus because he is better than life. And so what he's going to do now is he's going to burst the bubble of all the crowd that were there. So you see why we don't do palm fronds, okay? So he's about to burst the bubble in the next six chapters of all the people that were waving the palm branches going, Going, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Pick it up in John 12, 20. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. They were like, glory, all right, be glorified, be the King of Israel, and we'll be blessed. And he's like, that's not what I mean. By glorified, he meant that he was going to die and go to the cross. How do we know that? Because 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And you know, the people are like, why are you talking about dying all the time? We just did your kingly processional. You're supposed to come in and take over. What's with the dying talk? Verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in the world will keep it. To which the crowd's going, well, I love my life. Jesus is going, well, yeah, you're on the wrong side here. That I'm not coming to set up an earthly kingdom. He says here, it's for eternal life that I've come. And then he says, if anybody serves me, you must follow me. To where they go, where are you going? If you're going to the throne to be king, we're right behind you because I think you're going to hook us up. But if you're going to the cross, I don't know if we want to follow you there. Then he keeps going, verse 31. Or let me skip to 32. He says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, and that means lifted up on a cross, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. At which this point, the crowd's like, time out. All right, Jesus, come on. What's with all this death talk? That's not how this is supposed to go. You see, we're supposed to follow you, then you're supposed to hook us up. You're supposed to take over Israel, and then you, all of us good Jewish, God-fearing people that have been following you, you're supposed to give us in this life what we want. I mean, if you just keep talking about death and dying and putting in the ground and lift it up, nobody's going to follow you. We don't understand. What are you talking about? Quit talking about death so much. And then in verse 34 of John chapter 12, they try to correct Jesus. And don't act like you've not done this before. The crowds answer him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. That these people have the audacity to try to correct Jesus' theology about Christology. And you've done this too. I've done this too. You ever get to those parts in the Bible and you're like, I really wish that verse wasn't in there. You know, like all the ones on money. Or how about last week about gouging out your eyes? You're like, what in the world translation do I have? I need to get a different one that says something more palatable. (laughs) That can't really mean that. So I got to try to make it mean something else. And so they're saying, we've heard it said from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? 
Jesus, um, <laughs> let me explain how this needs to work here. You can't be coming to Jerusalem to go to the cross and die. You got to be coming to Jerusalem to go to the throne so you can hook us up. And then, so they go, so who is the Son of Man? Are you sure you're even the Messiah? Maybe we've been following after the wrong Messiah. And so Jesus goes on to talk about light and walking in the light. And then he goes on in 48 through 50 to talk about that everything he is doing is to follow the will of the Father. And then if you pick it up in verse 50, and he says, I know that God's commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. In other words... Here's how Jesus burst the bubble of everybody that that was there on Palm Sunday. He says, I know you're asking for an earthly king, but that is not what I have come to this earth for. I have not come to give you what you want, but I've come to give you what you need. And what you need, listen, what you need, your greatest need is not political. If your greatest need was political, God would have sent a politician. Your greatest need is not financial. If your greatest need was financial, then God would have sent a banker. Your greatest need is not to be entertained or God would have sent an entertainer. Your greatest need is is not even companionship or God would have just sent a best friend. But your greatest need is that we are sinners, that we are sinners and we have a broken relationship with God. And because your greatest need is to do something about your sin, then God has sent a savior. And what you are asking for in this Hosanna save us and establish your king here and your kingdom here on earth, what you are asking for is not big enough. You're asking for something so temporary. So what if I do kick Rome out and I take over and I make all you senators of Jerusalem? For what? 15 years? 20 years? But every society is going to fall apart one day. But what I am establishing is an eternal kingdom because that is what you need. You see, most of the time, folks, that that we are too easily satisfied. Do you realize that? Do you know most of the times the things that we want aren't big enough? God's God's not offended by your want. He's actually offended when we don't want enough. When we're just satisfied with the temporary things of this world. Because you know the truth that they'll never satisfy. He goes, how many times do you have to go down that road before you figure out? that there's more to life than the cash and prizes of this world. C.S. Lewis says it this way. If you're not reading C.S. Lewis, you ought to be. And I'm not talking about the children's books. I mean, dig into the big wordy books, all right? He says this. C.S. Lewis says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. That's what Jesus essentially is saying to the crowd there on Palm Sunday. You're not even asking for enough. What I am establishing is an eternal kingdom. It's eternal life. It's total joy. It's complete peace. It's all of your sins forgiven. It's an adoption into God's family and a co-heir with Jesus forever and ever and ever. Amen. And all you're asking for is that your taxes would be lowered? You're ridiculous. You're like the kid playing in the mud in the, in the slums, and I'm offering you, hey, why don't we go to the ocean? It's way better. And you're like, no, nah, we're good with ringworm. Do you see why we might not hand out palm fronds on a Sunday? So then what happens from here is that the crowd turns on him. You know why? Because they didn't get what they wanted. You see, envy is wanting something other than what God wants for you. And what God wants for you above everything else is eternal life. He wants eternal life. He wants a relationship with you. He wants to adopt you into his family. And when you settle... For the shiny things of this world, what this crowd does is they turn on him. And it's because they don't understand. Jesus is saying, listen, I'm offering something to you. I'm offering something to you. And all you've got to do is you surrender what you can't hold on anyway. And what you receive is what could never be taken from you. And so he's arrested. He's arrested for claiming to be the son of God. He's tried in all these different courts all over the place. Nobody wants to be the guy 
that, that kills the man that claims to be Jesus, that claims to be the Son of God, that's raising people from the dead and walking on water and feeding people and healing people. Nobody wants to be that guy. And so eventually in John 18, skip over to John 18, he, uh, he finds himself being on trial in front of Pontius Pilate. Pilate's a governor. He works for the Caesar. And so John 18, the Bible says, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and he called Jesus and he said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And essentially, <clears throat> this is later in the week, essentially Pilate is the spokesperson for the crowd. Pilate is saying, are you going to give these people what they're asking for? What they're asking for is an earthly king. Are you that earthly king? Are you going to give them what they want? Are you the Messiah that's coming in to overthrow the government that I work for and establish your own kingdom? In verse 34, and Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Don't you think, Pilate, at some point like we do go, Jesus, can you just give me a yes or a no one time, please? Like, why you answer questions with questions all the time? My son is a lot like you, apparently. Verse 35, and Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? It's starting to get a little snippy here. And then Jesus answered in verse 36. And, that, and his answer right here is fundamental to us understanding envy and us understanding the problem that was Palm Sunday. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. Yes, I, have, I am a king. But I'm not a king like you were thinking. I'm not a king like they were singing about on Sunday, like the king of Israel. I'm actually the king of kings. I'm the Lord of lords. My kingdom is not of this world. Every earthly kingdom that's established here has an end date. Every one of them. My kingdom will never end. My kingdom is not about this world. My kingdom isn't about eternity forever and ever and ever. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, I like this part. If my kingdom were not of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. Do you know what he's doing? Because Pilate's drawing a line saying, all right, listen, if you're a real earthly king, then we and you got a problem because I'm the governor and you're a king. And so we, we're going to have to throw down a little bit because there's not room for two kings. And Jesus says, look, my kingdom's not of this world. But if it, of, if it was of this world, you couldn't arrest me anyway. I could just, you know, he, Pilate's like, whoa. He said, but I ain't trying to flex on you right now, but I could. I'll be back. It's going to be bad then. But right now, I got to set something up. So verse 37, then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose, for what purpose? For being a king. For this purpose, I was born, and for this purpose, I have come into the world. In other words, I have come to set up an eternal kingdom, a kingdom that is not of this world, to bear witness to the truth that everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate asked an important question. Verse 38, Pilate said to him, what is truth? And we know Jesus would say that truth is not a what, truth is a who. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father, or in our context this morning, no one gets into my kingdom through any other way except through me. Why? Because he is truth. And what he's establishing here is not a temporary kingdom where you and I get the benefits of the cash and prizes of being a part of that kingdom. But our kingdom is somewhere else in its eternal kingdom where there's no rust or moth or any of those kind of things. And so after Pilate said this, he went back outside to the Jews and he told him, I found no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. And so do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? You see, Pilate's thinking, all right, I don't want to send this guy to death row either. So I've found a loophole. In order to appease the, the nation of Israel, that what Rome would do is at Passover every year is they would set one prisoner free and the crowd got to choose which one goes free. And so Pilate says, um, okay, I've got a great option. Why don't we set your king free? And then look what the next verse says in verse 40. And they, who's they? They, and we know this because of the Passover. Everybody showed up for the feast. It took them all week to do everything that they needed to do. And so some of the same they that, they were, that were there Sunday with their hands in the air, praising, Hosanna, blessed to see who comes in the name of the Lord. That same they on Friday when they don't get what they want, guess what they do? They say, they cried out, not this man, 
but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. That word in Greek literally is insurrectionist. We would think of him as a terrorist. Like he was trying to overthrow the government. He was killing people. He was a murderer. He was dirty. He had been arrested. He had been tried. He had been convicted. He had been sentenced to death. And he had earned it. And he deserved it. And when you look at this story, you think, how in the world could you choose Barabbas? What are y'all talking about? Pilate's probably even thinking, no, 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 no. Maybe you didn't hear me. I'm putting up for you. You can either choose A or B, okay? And B is Barabbas, and he's a terrorist. He's a killer. He's a murderer. He's a rebel. He's probably killed some of your friends and family trying to get his own way. He deserves death. He's rotten, and he's dirty, and he's unrepentant, and he won't even say he's sorry. Or maybe the better option is why don't we let Jesus go? Remember, he'd like play with the kids and pet the sheep. Remember, we all got hungry that time. It was fish sandwiches for all of us, and there was enough leftovers for 12 basketful. Remember that wedding we went to back in Cana, first miracle ever, and he made the more wine. Sorry, Baptist. Remember that? It jacked up your theology. We ran out of wine, and what would Jesus do? Make more wine. Praise Jesus, all right? Why don't we let him go? You know, there's some dead people who aren't dead anymore because of him, right? Right, Mary? Right, Martha? Their brother Lazarus was dead, and Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And we leaned over like, but Lord, he stinketh. They'd be like, all right, he washed later. But come on out, dead man. And dead people came back to life. And he cast out demons. And he forgives sins. And he heals people. Right, blind man? And he's going, yay, right. Why don't we let this guy go? And you know, right in the middle of the trial of Jesus is a picture of substitutionary atonement. You see, Jesus came to establish a heavenly kingdom, an eternal kingdom. And a lot of times, that's impossible for me and you to grab onto, right? We can't even, we don't even have like a category for that in our mind. And so God gives us this picture of substitutionary atonement. Because here's the truth. You and me, we are Barabbas. That we are Barabbas. That we get set free. And Christ takes our place and goes to the cross. And what did Barabbas do to deserve it? Nothing, nothing, nothing. And that's the kind of kingdom that Jesus is here to establish. And so if you go to John 19, 13, what's happened at this point is Jesus has been handed over. He's been flogged. He's been beaten. He's been crowned with thorns. And so when Pilate, John 19, 13, so when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and he sat down in the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic, Gabbatha. And now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. And it was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold, your king. And they, they, the same they that was there Sunday, the same crowd that showed up to see the miracle worker do another miracle, the same they that they thought was going to establish a kingdom and give them what they want, That they, they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? See what happens when we don't want what God wants for us? What they wanted was an earthly king. What God wanted for them was eternal life. And when they didn't get what they wanted, they turned on God. Church, May we never be a people that gathers on a Sunday and lifts our hands and sings Hosanna. And then that Friday, we crucify him in our words, in our actions, in our deed, in our lack of faith, in the way we treat people, in the way we slap the face of an almighty God, in the way that we treat the temporary things of this world as if they're eternal and act like God is our do boy. And if we can say the right prayer or give enough money that he owes us, Whatever it is, because if that's the case, that thing has become your God and Jesus in your God. And so that's the, so we ain't handing out palm things, okay? Because it's just, I mean, it's just envy at its worst. Here's the point. That envy is a sin against God and that we desire something other than what our Father knows is best for us. Envy is a sin against God in that we desire something other than what our Father knows is best for us. And here's what I want to push. And and here's why, by the way, I could have spent our entire time 
talking about the surface level things of envy. Because they talk about, hey, I know your friend's car is nice, but you know what? You can get a car that's fine too. But do you realize how that's just like mowing over the weeds? Look, it's about time to start cutting our grass again, right? You get those Florida weeds and you mow over them, and they, don't they look great? I mean, you know, it's great for like an hour. And the weeds are like, here they go again. You, if you don't get down in there and root those things out, they'll just pop right back up. And if you just deal with the surface level of envy, you're never going to get to the root of it. The root of envy in your life is you don't trust your heavenly father to know what's best for you. That's it. Me too. Now, God's okay when you want stuff. It's all right. I mean, I want Bubba to win today. Who doesn't, right? Everybody loves Jesus, loves Bubba. So come on, right? Amen. Ron's with me. It's okay to want some stuff too. Tim Keller explains it this way. Want's okay when you're the dog and the tail is the want. But when you become the tail and the want becomes the dog, it's envious, it's coveting, and it's sin. And so envy is that time when you, it's a sin against God, when you don't trust your heavenly father to know what's best for you. And something that's just been rattling around in my soul this week as I've been studying this, this, is that how can we continue to be envious for the temporary things of this world when our king says that his kingdom is not of this world? How can we continuously be envious for the temporary things of this world? Like you think, I can't live unless I have whatever it is. If we continuously want and are envious for the things of this world, the temporary things of this world, and our king said, my kingdom is not of this world. And so if the kingdoms of this world consume you, I've got horrible news for you. Jesus might not be your king. You need to really investigate if Jesus sits on the throne of your life. If you call yourself a Christian, that means that you have surrendered your life to the lordship or kingship of Jesus Christ. And so if you're more interested in the kingdom, the things of this world, than you are serving the king, you might, you might not be serving Jesus as your king. You might not be. Because his kingdom is not of this world. And if you can get this thing right, if you, can, if you can just understand that your heavenly father is more than enough, that Jesus is the prize, that even the kingdom that he's establishing in heaven the thing that people like to talk about, like the streets of gold and the banquet table with plenty of food and the mansions and all of that, that's not even the prize. That the prize is Jesus sitting on the throne, that he in and of himself is more than enough. And when you begin to saturate your life in that kind of gospel, then you can rightly begin to handle the stuff of this world. And it's okay to want a little bit of stuff. That really is. It's fine. As long as you understand that every good and perfect gift is from above. And that stuff doesn't terminate on itself, but it stirs in, in you worship of the giver of that stuff. I mean, you know, every parent that likes to give good gifts to their kids understands this. Like, I want to spoil my kids, but I do not want my kids to be spoiled. I want to give them things that, that help them understand that I love them so much. Sometimes, um, like my four-year-old daughter, she's enamored with the iPad. And so if she can download a, a, another app, she'll go, Dad, best dad ever. <laughs> Just like that. And I'm a little bit addicted to that, right? So I'm like, let me give you some more apps. But when I begin to perceive that she's just saying that so that I will, then I realize it ain't about me and her. It's about her and the iPad. We're moving the iPad out of the way. Or when my son, when my son begins to fall in love with the army men instead of the giver of the army men, then we're pulling the army men out. Sometimes I was coming home from trips and they were running up to me, daddy's home, what did you bring me? Nothing. No, I'm not gonna give you something that's actually gonna get in between my relationship with you. Do you know you got a good dad that is withholding things from you for your joy? Because why in the world would he give you something that would drive a wedge between you and him? Why in the world? No good dad would do that. And so if we continue to be envious for the temporary things of this world, it may, it may be revealing to you, especially those of you who grew up in church a long time, know a lot of Bible verses, been in a lot of Bible studies. But you're just enamored with the kingdoms of this world. You've really got to check your heart to see who's sitting on the throne there. And if envy is not wanting for you what God wants for you, then contentment is trusting your heavenly Father and what he wants for you. You see, envy is a sin against God because you're saying, God, not only did you not give me enough, but you gave it to the wrong person. 
And if I were you, I would have done a better job of handing out the gifts. That's the sin of envy. The peace of contentment is looking around your good life going, man, you know, there's some other stuff I want. But God, I trust you. I trust that you're a good dad and you want what's best for me. That's contentment. You know, if you read about the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, remember we studied about him a lot in the book of Acts. Paul in the book of Philippians, he says some just audacious things about contentment. I mean, in the best way possible, I want to be like Paul. He says, he says, I have learned the secret of being content in every situation, whether in want or in plenty, whether hungry or well-fed. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That was not a Bible verse about quarterbacks scoring touchdowns. That's a Bible verse about Jesus is sufficient and he's more than enough. And the secret of being content in all situations is not the situation. It's Jesus. You realize that envy has nothing to do with what you have. You feed that appetite with more stuff, oh my gosh, you're too dumb to talk to. When you feed an appetite, does it shrink or grow? Remember Thanksgiving last year? When you ate, you were like, oh, I mean, you ate and ate and ate and went and put on stretch pants and came back and ate some more. And then you're sitting there watching Detroit. At least they're good now, right? We're like, oh man, I'm never gonna eat again for like a week. What do you do? After your little tryptophan nap wears off and you wake up and you're like, we got a turkey sandwich or something in there, just feeding that baby. The same thing's true with envy. Did God not teach us anything through VH1 behind the music? It doesn't matter how much stuff you have. If you don't have Jesus, then you don't have contentment, period. And I want, I want that kind of contentment that Paul's talking about. What Paul is saying is, whether I have a ton of stuff or I've got no stuff, I got Jesus, and Jesus equals contentment. I'm not envious of you or you, because I got Jesus, and he's more than enough for me. And so he'll say these ridiculous things like, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What do you do with a man like that? So they arrest Paul. You'll remember this from Acts. They arrest Paul and put him on trial for what? Trying to lead people to Jesus. And while he's on trial for trying to lead people to Jesus, what does he do? He tries to lead those people that are trying him to Jesus. Paul, stop preaching the gospel. Well, while we're here, why don't we just cover the gospel one more time? And they say, are you trying to make us Christians in such a short time? I don't care how long it takes because you're kind of in charge of my calendar, but we're going to do this. And so what do they do? Paul, you're in prison. Fine. Prisoners need Jesus too. I'll tell them. Oh, we're going to surround you with, with, with guards. That's all right. Chain them to me. I'm going to chain them to the Lord. Well, all right, Paul, you better shut up. I'm not going to shut up. Can I get a hymnal? Because I want to sing a few hymns here. And then the walls come falling down. He walks back out of prison again. So they lock him up and they put him in prison. And they say, beat him this time. Whip him this time. And they're whipping Paul. And what is his response? I consider it joy that I'm considered worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. All right, stop beating him. That doesn't work either. Paul, we're going to kill you. Great. Kill me. To die is gain. I'll be face to face with the Jesus that I love. All right, don't kill him. To live is Christ. What do you do with that? (laughs) The only way to crush envy is to know that Jesus is more than enough. It's not more stuff. It's not feeding and fueling the appetite. It's knowing this. It's knowing, C.S. Lewis says it this way, if I find in myself desire which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world, that my kingdom is not of this world, that when you get thirsty, there's water to quench your thirst, all right? When you desire your wife, you have a wife to, to quench that desire. When you get hungry, there is food to quench that hunger. But what he says is, if I find in myself a desire which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I'm made for another world. Proverbs says it this way. Proverbs 14.30, the Bible says, a heart at peace gives life to the body. A heart at peace gives life to the body. And here's what you've got to know, peace. The Hebrew word there is shalom. The only way you have peace is to have Jesus. He gives life to the body. Apart from Christ, you cannot know peace. You can know a lack of conflict. You can know some really good circumstances for a time. I mean, you don't have to trust Jesus to have a good afternoon to sit on the back porch one day, just relax and get a cool breeze and all is well in your world and go, ah, isn't this nice? Oh, it is so nice. And you better enjoy it because at some point, somebody's getting sick, the news is going bad, the economy's turning, whatever that environment is, it's going to change. 
But when you know Jesus, he's immutable, he's unchanging, and the peace transcends understanding. Uh, Proverbs 14.30 has a back half too. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Envy rots the bones. And when we're envious, it means we're discontent with God. That we want for us something other than God wants for us. And the problem is, is that what we want is so small and temporary. And God is saying, hey, can you just surrender that as your idol and trust in me? Trust in me. And what I want for you, what I have purchased for you, what you need is more, I mean, it's just more pleasing. It's more joyful. It's, it's peace for your soul. And the only way that happens is through a relationship with Jesus Christ. That envy is rotten in the bone. And when we just try to feed our appetite with more stuff, man, if, you had a, if your bones were rotting and you just keep rubbing lotion on you, the only thing that you're going to do is stink less while you're rotting. When you pursue the things of this world as if they are eternal, all you're doing is you might just stink a little less on your way to rotting. The Ten Commandments, the first one, is there's only one God and you shall have no other gods before him. The tenth one is just the antithesis of that, thou shalt not covet. And when we covet, essentially all we're doing, when we're envious, is we're saying, God, you're not enough. I want to worship something else. I want to worship something else. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what it would be like for you to have that kind of peace that Paul talks about, that kind of peace that the writer of Proverbs talks about, that kind of peace that surpasses understanding? Sure, there could be some things in this world that you want. There's, you know, your friends could get some stuff and you could actually rejoice with them and for them. But can you imagine, like maybe from this day until next Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, what if all week you were actually, you, you understood the secret of being content? The secret that you have a good dad that's in charge of all things, that gives good gifts to his kids, and that this world is temporary and that what he offers you is eternal. So even if it ain't okay right now, it's going to be okay one day. That you could rest in that. And I'm talking about that kind of rest where like when you lay down your head on the pillow at night, you just have rest for your soul. Did you know Jesus offers you that invitation? Jesus says this in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, come to me all. You know, we're a movement for all people. And Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy burdened. Look, it will exhaust you trying to want what everybody else has, doesn't it? Isn't discontentment one of the most exhausting things in the world? I mean, those of you that have been trying to keep up with the Joneses, man, that is an exhausting pursuit, isn't it? And I've told you before, man, don't try to keep up with the Joneses. The Joneses are going to hell. You don't want to follow them. And so he says, come to me. Hey, everybody's got it together. The fake you's doing just fine. Come to me, all who are weary, exhausted, and heavy burdened. And here's what Jesus offers. And I will give you peace. I will give you rest for your soul. Imagine what your week could look like this week. If you didn't covet anything because you knew there was one God, he was the only one worthy of worship. If you, if you were content in everything, not because any of your circumstances even changed, but because you knew the secret of being content, and his name was Jesus. What if the things of this world grew strangely dim on your want list because you realized that your king had a kingdom that was not of this world? Can you imagine? I mean, regardless of what you believe right now, can you imagine all week long if you got to experience that rest for your soul, that peace, that relationship with God? That when you laid your head down tonight to go to sleep, you would just be thankful that God was in charge and you weren't. And then you'd go to sleep. That's what he offers. That's what he offers. It's not found in your circumstances. It's not found in feeding envy. It's not found even in a theology or a doctrine. It's found in Jesus. And so here's the invitation. Jesus says, come to me. Every one of you that are worn out for chasing after the things of this world. For my burden is light and my yoke is easy. 
And he can give you peace or rest for your soul. For anybody who steps off the throne of your own life and invites Jesus to take his rightful place as King and Lord of your life. Would you bow your heads? If you're here today and you're ready to surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ, you're ready to step off the throne of your life, you've been king of your own world and you see how that's turned out and you are ready to be a citizen of a kingdom that's not of this world. You're ready to admit that your way is not the way, that Jesus is the way, that you believe in the sufficiency of his death on the cross and his resurrection and you're ready to confess him as Lord and Savior. Would you just raise your hand right where you are and say, Jesus, I surrender my life to you. Your hand in the air doesn't save you. Saying a magic prayer doesn't save you, but your confession of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior claims what he did on the cross to purchase you into his kingdom. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you and I praise you that there's salvation in this place. God, I thank you that you conquered sin, you conquered death, and that our kingdom is not of this world. And yet, God, even those of us that have been walking with you for a long time and read our Bibles and sing with our eyes closed, God, there's still something in us that is so enamored with the kingdoms of this world. God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, by the love of the Heavenly Father, God, would you continuously draw us closer and closer to you so that we will know, and I mean really know, like at the depth of our soul, know that the pursuit of the appetites of this world will always leave us wanting more. But a surrendered relationship with you and you alone is more than enough. So God, we confess as a church that we want for us what you want for us because you know us best as our Heavenly Father. And God, we can trust you in that because you demonstrated your love for us in this, that while we were yet still sinners, while we were feeding the appetites of our flesh, God, while we were active rebels against you and your kingdom, that Christ died for us and so God we surrender we love you because you first love us and God we trust you that you are more than enough and we pray it in Jesus name amen would you please stand and pray with me <clears throat> well we just prayed so we're not going to pray more okay a lot of praying <laughs> hey listen we respond this is how we respond we respond by singing together we're going to sing about surrender we respond if you're a regular by bringing our tithes and offerings to the offering boxes around the room We respond by coming to the altar. And some of us that have been enamored with the things of this world, some of us need to come and lay them at the feet of Jesus at the altar and to receive, to pick up his peace and let it transcend understanding. Let us respond.